morning. Thank you for attending today. As Woody Allen says, 90% of any job is showing up. I hope what we share here today will benefit you and your respective organizations. I'd like to begin by posing some questions to you. How many of you have cell phones? Okay. Incidentally, many of my Amish neighbor friends in central Pennsylvania are even using them. Two weeks ago, I read that over half, or almost half, of the United States population is now engaged in some form of social networking. How many of you use a form of social networking, such as Facebook and Twitter? How many of you have donated money to disaster relief or some other favorite cause through your cell phone? Okay, we got about half there. We've all witnessed the power of this new form of fundraising called microphilanthropy over the last decade, from raising money for disaster victims to political campaigns. And a recent article in the New York Times showed how even research scientists are now raising money through such crowdfunding ventures as Kickstarter, Indiegogo, and Rocket Hub. This is truly a tremendous force for social change as we re-envision the ways to raise money for our museums, regardless of how small or large they may be. How many of you have tried some form of crowdfunding for your institution? Uh, I'm sorry? Any type of crowdfunding or microphilanthropy, have any of you have used anything like that to help your organization? Well, PayPal or something like that, you have something of that form on your, on your websites. Okay. How many of you were satisfied with this approach in meeting your goals? All right. We'll go around later in the session to get some feedback on your levels of success and the lessons that you've learned or wish to learn. The new forms of microphilanthropy are constantly emerging and evolving. They involve more than just slapping a PayPal button on your website. At times, as you'll hear later, they even have unintended benefits. Our panelists today are a, certainly a diverse lot, beginning with the first person who brought this subject to my attention. We have Sarah Hanwerger, who's an attorney with Rights Assist in uh, Bethesda, Maryland. And her assistant or associate here is Jenny Tricano. Next one down. Uh, who is now the budget director with the National Geographic. The third speaker will be, or second speaker will be Bob Halbrunner, who is director of development for the Maymont Foundation here in Richmond. And our first presenter, a woman who I know will someday be proclaimed the patron saint of small museums everywhere. <laughs> the chief executive officer of the Abbey Museum in Bar Harbor, Maine, Cinnamon Catlin Legato. Thanks, Bruce. So we are being recorded, just so you know. We'll try our best to be professional. So I have the first presentation today. This is my title. This is not the whole session's title. It's Claimer. And I live in Maine, so I needed to go with the vernacular. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about Wicked Cheap. 
micro giving ideas. And as Bruce said, I'm very involved in small museums and have worked in small museums until just recently when I joined the Abbey Museum. Um, but I think it's important for all museums to kind of realize that there's a starting point to this if you're not into microphilanthropy, and it's a very obvious place. And so I'm going to spend a little time with that um, and then really focus on how to do this right now with little to no money, and then you'll have the full continuum as the session rolls out. So I do apologize to those of you that think this is very rudimentary, but I think it's important to show the whole picture. So the donation box. I'm assuming everyone in this room is very familiar with donation boxes, and you have them. How many of you really spend time thinking about them, though? A few. Otherwise, it's just naturally there, isn't it? It's just always there. Um, if you start paying attention to the donation box, at least first, you might find some quick improvement. It's a very consistent site in museums, and it's really something that we have, um, that we benefit from the other nonprofits don't really have. You don't always walk into your average healthcare nonprofit and see a donation box as you would in a museum. Uh, but if you spend a little time thinking about it and improving it, you will start to reap greater rewards through the box. How many of you all have more than one donation box in your institution? So just a few. Uh, a tip I learned a while back was to make sure you place that donation box right where a change is made whether that's in the gift shop or at the admissions desk or what have you. So in my last position, I had this incredible staff member who learned it one day in a session and came running back and said, we have to get another donation box. Fine, we did. And put it next to the cash register. We had two buildings we had to work between. So now we had one in each building. And we pretty quickly doubled all of the money we would get. And we would get in those donation boxes a couple thousand a year. So it's not small change that you're getting. For big museums, it may be. But for small museums, that's a new desktop computer, that's all those things you need to be more efficient um, and operable. Um, and then fortunately when I got to the museum I'm at now, there were two, two, no two donation boxes. We have two facilities, one in each, and the one, the main one, um, is right next to the admission desk, and I'll show you that in a minute. But I wanted to show you the money we're getting in our boxes at the Abbey Museum. So donation boxes are clearly a variety of shapes and sizes. Clear signage is really key to it. How many of you all have a sign on your donation box? Or is it on your, good. So about half of you, and the rest of you I'm assuming is just a big box that speaks for itself. So you might want to think about signage as well, um, but you also might want to take that a step further and tell them what that money's going toward. Um, and I'll show you an example of that. Now, I'm not gonna say that our signage is a good example completely <laughs> on the front line, but this is the admissions desk my happy volunteer, Linda, smiling as people come in. Um, that's the first point of view really people see when they come in and the donation box is right there. We need to continue to improve signage, but when I started at the Abbey, there was no signage around the box. So just recently we added a sign that you see on the top right that talks about our annual fund drive. Whether people read it or not, I can't guarantee, but it will certainly point attention to something and it also helps the frontline staff talk about it, which I think is a very uh, valuable tool as well, so that the frontline staff feels engaged in philanthropy and in the operations of the museum. We'll continue to improve our signage, but for now I need to get something out there um, as fast as possible. And one other note about signage, um, we realized fairly recently that there was nothing on the frontline that talked about 
the fact that we're a private nonprofit. I kept hearing, and I have to tell you, I've only been there a couple years, so I've got a lot of projects ahead of me, but this is one of the early ones that I wanted to resolve. We would hear from people going, to t going through tours at the Abbey that they didn't know how we were funded, and they were very curious because of the reach that we have. We, we reach all across the state working with tribal organizations and then showcase their stories at a museum that's quite um, state-of-the-art, quite beautiful, lots of exhibits. And if you really pay attention, you'll realize that you're, you start wondering how we're funding ourselves. So fortunately, the guests sometimes will ask, and as soon as we tell them we're a private nonprofit, they literally march over to the donation box and drop in 20 or something like that. So we realized, well, it would be smart if they knew up front that we're a private nonprofit. So we started first with this sign, and we'll continue to add signage in, in subtle ways. But that's just a little um, sidebar about signage. To make sure people understand you're a nonprofit, we can't assume that the general populace understands how museums are funded. If they did, we'd have more money, right? So this is another thing that we've started doing, which I call the Kohl's model. If you shop at Kohl's from time to time, you'll be asked to give a dollar or a donation to a cause that they're supporting. And one day I was shopping, as I often do, and said, well, why can't we do this? It's just asking for money. Um, so this is the question that we ask. Would you like to give a dollar today to help us continue offering educational programs for school children in the public? Nine times out of 10, yeah, sure, a dollar. And we just add it, we've got it coded in the cash register. And, and next thing you know, we're at two grand in a year. Just simple asking. We did a test run to see how it felt, how it would work, how our frontline staff would get engaged. And in three weeks, we had $75 with about half of our staff really doing it. We, I should say that um, we are a seasonal organization, so in the summer, we hire a ton of seasonal staff. So they could be very different from year to year. So to see how well they would perform, was it was important for us to test it. We didn't know if they would do it. Um, so it was a good test run, $75 pretty quick in the door by simple asks, and now we average about 2000 a year. It can go up, it's a little bit down this year, but it's a personnel issue. It's not a visitor issue. Um, last year, I was managing the front line as a CEO because of some staff changes. This year, there's middle management doing it. So I'm gonna be working with her to make sure that personnel really keep doing this and asking. And one of the other things that we do is when you make the ask, um, we just simply say, because the people are already engaged in buying something, they already like you, and the stuff in our gift shop is not always very cheap. We have a lot of fine arts and basketry and things like that. Um, and so once they make that ask, they code it in, they get the money, but then we've also started attaching a piece of paper to their receipt. And the receipt also says, because we have the ability to program in our cash register, thank you for your donation when they purchase it, but then we also attach a piece of paper that's beautifully designed, all done in-house, but just explains what we do. Thank you for giving, Your mission. our mission is this, we do this, and it revolves around questions like this. So they have it at home with them. And of course, if we're really on our game, we enclose a membership brochure. Really simple, doesn't cost you a dime, opportunities for micro-giving right now, today. Just to show you what else we're doing, we of course are making sure our website has the ability for giving. You can see in the top right, contribute online. We recently changed our website so that that shows up on every single page. It's part of the masthead of the, of the site. But then we've also added, when we're in a campaign, something very clear on the front. You see that annual giving sustains learning. You can click on that 
and learn more about our campaign. You can see a um, progress report, how we're doing. Right now we have $130,000 to raise by the end of the year. We're well into that, but I don't want them to know that just yet. I'm trying to challenge them um, who visit to um, help us get there. Very simple thing, just making sure you've highlighted that you can give in a way that's consistent throughout the website. That was maybe $30 of design time from our web designer to do that. We do an e-news email blast every month. We've added the donate button. So that happens every month. Average gift is $20. Not every newsletter will get a gift, but $20 when you're just doing your job and telling them what we're doing is really nice when you get that in response. So about $20 a person. And I bet they'll tell you some other averages that vary, but for us, it's about $20 a person. And this is a simple constant contact subscription that we already were using from marketing by email. We've started doing a newsletter format through it, and then we just we continue to improve it, improve it, improve it. This is one of the basic formations of it. So if you see us again in a year, it'll probably look a little different, but there will always be a uh, donate button for sure. And then the most recent thing we've done, just a few weeks old, is a targeted email asking for donations. I can't say that this was immediately successful, but I'm not going to give up just yet. We do an archeological field school every summer. We've been doing it consistently since the 80s. The Abbey has always done excavations in its whole existence since 1928. But about the, since the 80s, we've been doing a field school where students and adults, lifelong learners, pay to come and dig with professional archeologists and do real science for a week on the coast of Maine. It's a really great experience. So we sent, as soon as the field school finished, an email from, and you can't see it, it's just below the line, an email from the state archeologist in our curative collections who runs the field school, saying that another year in the field, photos from the field, it's been a great week, we've learned so much, hugs and kisses, can we have some money, basically was the message. And that just went to 70 people, so it's very targeted, and we're gonna continue to do this. This just went out, so um, we haven't seen the results yet, but I'm pretty confident it's gonna be a building block into our micro-philanthropy world. Um, very simple, yet another constant contact email, 30 bucks a month gets you started. Um, so that is really a brief, brief presentation, I realize, but I wanted to give you a starting point before you hear these wonderful examples from the rest of our panel. Um, and then of course you can always email me if you have questions about what we're doing for no money because I can probably talk a blue streak about that. Um, at this point, I'm gonna hand it over to the rest of our panel. Any questions though real quick before I leave? Yes. That's a very good question. The question was, when we started asking for um, a dollar donation at the front line, did it change behavior at the donation box? I can't say that I've noticed that. The biggest thing that's changed behavior at the donation box is the fact that we empty it more often. Yes, and I don't know if you caught it in the slide, and I'm sorry I didn't point it out. Um, we had a big increase in 2010. When I arrived, they were not emptying it in the belief system that it meant people should give. They thought it did the opposite effect, that people would give more. So we started emptying it, I think, four times a year now. We do keep it pretty full, but um, about four times a year we empty it and we doubled our income through the donation box. 
We look needy when it's empty. <laughs> yes. Do we seed the box? Yes. I keep about um, twenty, thirty dollars and change in there, and I make sure there's some big bills. For sure. Yes. Yes, for sure. And that's one of the things that is a challenge, though, because we have this seasonal staff hiring situation where it takes a little while for that to embed, so I need to work on improving that. But yes, those who have been engaged in it, it, it forces them to remember that we're a private nonprofit. It forces them to remember that they don't have a job unless we fundraise. <laughs> we have earned income, of course, because we charge admission, but it doesn't cover the bills. Um, and it just really makes them be more cognizant. So recently, for example, we had not been doing it like we're supposed to be, and um, the manager went and checked and was asking some questions and got them started back up again. And I mean, the first person she talked to, once she started doing it, in that course of the day, I think she raised $25. Everybody she waited on gave a dollar and they didn't say no. And so she says back to the manager, well, that was easy. And this is somebody that's been there for a few years, so it's a a personnel failure in some ways, but it's something you have to monitor. Um, but it is so easy, and once you start doing it, then it gets easier and easier and easier. But it's a training situation. Okay, I'm going to hand it over to our next speaker. We'll get the PowerPoint up. I appreciate your help in getting that PowerPoint up. Because I have to make a confession first. I'm not the new media specialist for the Maymont Foundation. <laughs> I'm the development director. However, our director of marketing here is here, and she's here to support me and also, I think, feed me correct jargon so that if you see me looking in that direction, she's truly, uh, she's truly pulling the puppet strings back there. My name is Bob Halberner. I'm, as I said, director of development with Maymont Foundation, which is right here in Richmond, Virginia. And if you have a little extra time while you're here, I hope you can get out to Maymont. It's one of uh, Richmond's real jewels, 100 acres of wonderful parkland. Um, and just to give you a sense of Maymont, I'm going to take a few minutes just to talk about it because I think it's important to put, um, put it in context. I'm going to be talking about our Text to Give program, which is a very specific uh, form of microphilanthropy. But um, why um, we were led in this direction um, has to do with the setting that we're in. Uh, we're 100 acres. Uh, it's a Victorian age estate, completed 1893 um, by an influential couple here in Richmond, the Dooleys. Uh, the gentleman was a businessman. He made a lot of money in railroads. And they used to live right down the street here, uh, downtown, and then decided to get out to the country. Um, which is now about three and a half, four minutes from here. So <laughs> this is an amazing oasis in the middle of, of, of an urban, you know, urban landscape. Um, we have three entry points into these 100 acres, uh, which is a challenge, um, but also it gives us, obviously, access um, all around, which is wonderful. We have the historic estate uh, entrance, which you see there, you see the mansion, and the buildings behind the mansion um, all were outbuildings of this, of this estate. This is one entry into the, uh, to the ground where you'll find not only the historic buildings, but also the historic gardens. We have a wonderful Italian garden and, and a nationally recognized Japanese garden as well, one of the largest in the country. 
Um, in the top left-hand corner of that square, you see uh, some rooftop there. That's our nature center. About 12 years ago, we added to Maymont, um, and we added a nature center that interprets the James River um, and the environment uh, that, that we are in. And a third entry point, which is to the far left, not pictured here, is our children's farm. Um, we also have uh, a place where children can come and get up close and personal with domestic animals. And if you go a little further into the estate, we have exhibits of wildlife, including our bald eagle exhibits, black bear exhibits, bobcats, because uh, back in the 50s, Richmond thought it might need a zoo. And so we were actually a site where they started uh, some of those activities to build a zoo um, as part of this, at that time, what was a city park. It was in 1975 that the Maymont Foundation was formed to operate and manage this city park, and now we are um, fully operational and take care of all, all of the annual fundraising and maintenance and operations. Um, we have an attendance of about 500 guests annually. So we have 500 user interactions, which makes us one of the top cultural attractions in Richmond. And to top it all off, we're mainly a free access attraction. So you can come in, obviously, to the gardens for free, to the parkland for free, to the house museum to tour the wonderful collection that the Dooley's left Richmond for free. Um, and then all of our outdoor wildlife and domestic animal exhibits are free. Our annual fundraising. Um, we have a comprehensive, very traditional forms of fundraising at Maymont. We have annual fund, obviously grants and a membership program. Wonderful affinity groups that, that, that help us throughout the year with special events and straight up fundraising as well. And then you talked about donation boxes. We have donation boxes. And there you can see one that's right at the entrance of the historic side of the estate. And we have a suggested donation there of $5. Um, amazingly, the boxes across the entire estate, which I think number four, somewhere around four, go ahead. There's eight, actually. <laughs> There's about eight boxes. and. They, uh, they claim over $100,000 uh, each, each year, annually. Um, we also have a fountain, so some of that is in change. About $2,000 of that is in, is in pennies, quarters, and nickels. Um, so what we, can, you know, what we can deduct from that is about one in five people are going ahead and making a donation because I think when they get to Maymont, the free access is a really wonderful value proposition People are transported when they come in, they enjoy it, they come back again and again, they bring their families, and they're willing to help support us. But everybody doesn't have change in their pocket. Everybody doesn't have dollars in their pocket. And so um, it wasn't soon after that I think I got to Maymont that the marketing department brought this, bubbled up this idea of text to give um, as an option to add to our, to our fundraising mechanisms. Um, and those people who don't have the money in their pocket, let's not lose them. And so we looked at a couple different providers and we went ahead with one called Mobile Cause. Um, it had a very robust features about it, easy to use, and it was low cost. 
And so that was um, also attracting us to this particular provider of a text-to-give program. And it has additional functionality. For example, we can do polls on it. So we can, we can send out, uh, we can have polls where we ask people, um, tell us when you think uh, the first bloom on our star magnolia is going to come in. And so what we're trying to do besides just pull dollars out of people is build relationships with people and get them involved in an online manner um, while they're there um, visiting in a very immediate way. Um, those people who do take part in the polling or take part in texting to give us, we also have the opportunity for uh, messaging back out to them if they would like it. So if they give us their information and say, we would like to hear from you, we also have the ability through this system to build relationship through mobile messaging. And other bells and whistles that it has is we can develop widgets which we can embed into our website. Widgets are the wonderful little graphics that you see in website. It might be a thermometer that, that moves up as everyone gives us more and more money. And I have an example of one of those later on. Um, and what you see there is uh, one of the delivery message methods that we're using. Um, these are little cards that we have. And as we go through the next few slides, I'm going to show you how we're communicating this to, to our public. And this is actually one opportunity. For example, those of you who might work in a house museum, you might think, well, I don't want to put up a big sign in this exhibit that says text to give us now. So here's an opportunity that you can give a docent that can, you know, at the end of a tour or something like that, this can be given nicely. And it makes it so easy for folks. We've been using QR codes. I saw most people raise their hand and said they had a cell phone. How many of them are smartphones? Okay, about a third to a half. Um, so you guys are probably familiar with these QR codes which are popping up in the newspaper. And it just takes away, um, it takes some steps out of the equation when you're asking people to do something because all you need to do is go to your QR reader, put it up there. I'll bet it might work on the screen if it's clear enough. And that will take you directly to a page where you can make a donation. And so you don't have to type um, anything to get there. Because we want to make it as easy as possible for people. What were our goals? What are our goals? Because you saw at the beginning of this presentation, this is a pilot program. We're learning as we go through it. Obviously, increased on-site donations. I had dollar signs in my eyes when we thought about text to give We hear these wonderful stories um, um, about how much money comes in through text to give um, And we happen to have 27,000 Facebook fans at Maymont, which is a huge number for an organization our size. And as I thought, if I could just multiply by five all those 27,000, I have a 25% you know, increase in our annual fund boom. Um, However, there are many steps, hopefully, to get to that point one day. So we wanted to provide people additional tools, which I mentioned. Everyone doesn't have change in their pockets. Um, perhaps, moreover, at this point in the development of this idea, we want to increase and uh, move forward our technology portfolio at Maymont. Um, for example, right now we're um, developing plans to develop a mobile-friendly website. So when you go to the website, on, on a phone, it's not very small and you constantly have to make it you know, larger. 
we'll actually develop a website that is that is suited for this delivery method, which is small, and it just gives you the information you need quickly. Another piece there is Scavenger. We started, uh, we signed up for Scavenger, which gave people the opportunity through their cell phones to go throughout the estate, take pictures of where they were and that sort of thing, and then get a prize. So again, it's relationship building. For those people who go through the entire Scavenger fund with their smartphone, they get uh, communication from us at the end. Capitalize on impulse giving. Um, you'll see a few signs coming up. Um, when people are at that Black Barrett exhibit or when they're standing in front of the Italian garden, that sort of thing, here's an opportunity where they're you know, at a moment of repose, thinking and enjoying. Here's an opportunity to try and catch them and say, hey, this might be worth $5 to you. And so with signage throughout the estate, um, we're attempting to capture some of those moments. And then I mentioned building relationships. Obviously, we're doing this online um, through smartphones, but also we were already very successful with this in our Facebook uh, program that we had. And remaining current. What you see there in that photograph is not a piece of clip art that I pulled off um, you know, the internet. That's from the front page of our, of our, uh, of our local section of our daily newspaper. Um, at a kind of a fam tour almost, where we did uh, mobile opportunities, invited in CVB, invited in uh, members of the media to show off what some of our, our opportunities were from a mobile standpoint. And uh, so we were able to get some PR coverage out of this as well. Why were we ready to do this? Um, we had this wonderful tradition of the small donations, obviously successful. Um, with over $100,000 coming into the donation boxes. So we know people are already um, willing to give to us in this manner. The 27,000 Facebook fans, we know people are interested in engaging with our organization via new technology, new ways of engaging. And Maimon is one of those places where people come to meet. Uh, people bring their families there. It's a social meeting place where you have a social uh, experience. And so I think things like Facebook and some of these other mobile technologies we're using already lends itself uh, to these new ways of giving. And so it's something to think about at your own organization. Does your organization lend itself to these methods? Um, and the increased use of smartphone technology, confession number two, I did not have a smartphone until after we got the text to give program. <laughs> and I still have two cell phones. I have this one and this one, and this one does not have texting on it at all because it was really hard how to figure that out. But I will say that it's quite easy on a smartphone. It's a second, it's quite amazing. I was at dinner last night with my family and my wife was texting across uh, to her friends. My son who was 12 has an iPod touch and he was doing things which is essentially the same thing uh, without the phone part. Um, and I was drinking a glass of wine all alone. <laughs> Here's an example, though, of some of the signs that, um, that we've been testing throughout the park. And just a few signs at this point, um, how we're communicating this. The signage program will be obviously an important part of this. As I said, we're testing right now because Maymont is in the middle of a new interpretive master plan where we're planning a new signage program, interpretive and wayfinding across the entire estate. 
So will text-to-give play into that? That's what we're trying to figure out now with signage and placement around the estate. Um, On-site event meetings, I promise I won't ask you to text-to-give right now. However, when we've had on-site meetings, um, we sometimes host uh, workshops and that sort of thing. People think it's cool. They come in, they see this sign, and the person who's running that workshop, they're like, everybody get out your cell phones. We usually tell you to turn off your cell phones at these things, but right now, you can make a donation. Um, we can put text to give at the bottom of our email signatures, um, printed materials, obviously. Um, I mentioned the quick response codes earlier. Um, also at Maymont, we do large-scale events, meaning we're inviting in perhaps a performing arts group to give an outdoor presentation or performance. Here's another opportunity where we've gotten up on stage and said, go ahead, text to give. And online, that QR code, when you click on that QR code, it takes you immediately to this, um, to this screen, which is on our website. There's one of those widgets up there. There's a little thermometer up there. And as I said, this mobile cause, uh, uh, the mobile cause site that, we're, that is giving us the power to provide text to give has all of these opportunities embedded in it um, with a wonderful content management tool that's quite robust. We can report uh, in real time. Um, we can see uh, when, when everything is coming in. We can set up campaigns. There's another widget there. Actually, this is where it says sent three days ago, sent eight days ago. Those kind of just kind of like bounce around. So it looks like there's activity um, uh, going on as far as people sending in text to give. So we launched it in spring. And I said there's just been a few signs and there's been a few announcements. And it's uh, 125 donors since we launched uh, in spring. And what, what we're doing over the course of this time is testing it to figure out how will this play into our new interpretive master planning and into our overall development plan um, as we go? Yes? Right. We can, depending upon the level of access they want to give, meaning the user, the texter, wants to give to us, um, we can build relationships. So that's where the polling comes in. That's where the additional mobile messaging comes in to try and build relationships that way. This is not a donation program where everybody's going to get an acknowledgement and a letter form every time. However, they do immediately get pushed back you know, a thank you message um, on their phone for forgiving. And smartphones are here. Here are some really amazing statistics that actually have just been out, and in, in some of them in just the past few days. Smartphones, an increase, the iPhone increased sales from first quarter 2010 to first quarter 2011, 115%. They shipped 8 million last year. Um, this year in January, they shipped, I think it was 18 million. And so, whereas um, I'm talking about an accelerated rollout, the number of smartphones in the marketplace now have already exceeded what they thought they would be at the fourth quarter at the end of this year. So it's catching very quickly. Um, and 54% of all cell phones, which 
we almost got to in this room here, are now smart. And a sobering statistic. How many of you all have ever played Angry Birds or looked over your child's shoulder while they're playing Angry Birds? Um, it was on NPR yesterday <laughs> that 200 million workday minutes are lost every day by employees playing Angry Birds. And that, transla <laughs> and that translates into $1.2 billion of lost worker productivity. So look at the opportunity we have to tap in <laughs> to get people to send us $5. And hope you'll visit us. If not in person, visit us online. Take our tour. Yes. No, no, unrestricted, unrestricted dollars. We try and move in that direction as, as much as possible. Yes. I've been there for about a year. I've not heard of any problems. Um, I think we have w one person who uh, is responsible for emptying those outdoor boxes. They're on a padlock. Um, I mean, truly, if somebody wanted to come in and fish out some money, they probably could. But um, we don't seem to have a, a problem with that. But Kathy? They're a big iron, they're pretty Baltic, yes, <laughs> yes, <laughs> very good, okay, thank you. attorney at Rights Assist. Um, I do um, image licensing mostly, um, but we work with a lot of museums, so I'm at a lot of these conferences and I hear a lot about funding and, you know, funding and um, trying to expand, you know, donor bases and people coming to your museum. How do you get more foot traffic? How do you reach out to um, younger people? Because I think it's a challenge for all museums that um, the people go to, going to museums and involved in museums are often an older generation and they're dying off. And um, so there's a lot of talk obviously about millennials and how, how can you appeal to them, how do you reach them. Um, and so we want to talk a little bit about how do you reach them in terms of funding because it's all well and good to have younger people coming to the museum and you hope that you turn them into donors or lifelong people, but how can you get money from them now? And there are some ways, um, like the donation box. Um, 
Cinnamon was talking about her donation box. I saw a really um, creative one at a museum where they had two boxes and um, two artifacts from their collection. And you could put a dollar in or a coin or whatever to cast a vote for that object being in um, an, an exhibit. And so people were really like, kids were interested in casting a vote, casting a vote, having some say. And it does tie in with the millennials who are different kinds of givers. They tend, um, they don't fund organizations, but they do fund causes. So if it's really specific, um, you know, they, they're not gonna send $100 to the ASPCA, but they're gonna give $10 to save this dog now. Um, and they wanna see their impact and they wanna be, you know, involved. There has to be some sort of give and take um, for them. So I think there are some really good um, donation things coming up that will involve um, an appeal to younger, younger people, particularly millennials who are mobile, do everything with their phone, want to do these sort of impulse things, um, and you can reach them. Um, and I'm Jenny Trapano, and I currently work at National Geographic Magazine, and you're probably thinking, why in the world is she here? Um, but when I signed up to speak at this conference, I was working at a company called Small Act, and we were doing social media consulting for AARP, Red Cross, National Geographic, as well as a whole bunch of very small nonprofits that had maybe one person doing social media and maybe one person doing all of their communications. Um, so I definitely understand the challenges that you all face. Um, and here's just a quick overview of what we'll talk about. Um, I think we've touched briefly enough on what microphilanthropy is, so we'll move into some of the tools like Kickstarter um, and other online tools for raising money, and then just some ideas um, for things that work and things that don't work. And then we'll talk a little bit about a museum that we both worked with and spoke with at another conference, the Never Sink Valley Museum of History and what they did to raise money. Yeah. So um, some of the platforms, how many people have heard of Donors Choose or know what it is? So a couple. It's, um, it's a website for fundraising that um, appeals to teachers. Um, and the teacher will set up a page where they say, we need a new, um, we need 10 new easels for our kids. And you can give, they have tiered giving. So you can give a dollar, you can give $5, you can give $10, you can give $50. And it says, you know, we're trying to raise $400 for easels. Um, and in exchange, when you give a dollar, you give $5 or whatever, you get a handwritten thank you note back from one of the kids when they reach their goal or a picture of them. Um, or they will use the easel to draw a piece of art and send it to you. So it really is that kind of interactive thing and it's really popular, it's very um, successful. Um, and Indiegogo and Kickstarter are similar. Um, they're huge platforms for fundraising and they do it through tiered, um, tiered donations where you also get something back so that um, if you are trying to raise money for um, a project, and you can give a couple of examples um, in a minute. Um, you know, for one dollar you'll just get a pin, but for twenty-five dollars you'll get a pin and a free membership. Or for fifty dollars you'll get a pin, a free membership, and an invitation to the opening. Um, and so, the more you give, the more you get back. Um, and it really encourages people. One of the things that's been really hugely successful is people who are raising money for films 
and they will put your name as a producer if you give a thousand dollars and it works like a charm people just want to see their name things um, and I think museums could do it too you know you could have a thank you board in your museum for people who give um, so they're very similar Indiegogo you can set up a project and raise money and you get all that money um, Kickstarter puts a little bit put a little bit of a game twist on it where it's an all or nothing so when people make donations if you don't reach your goal in a certain amount of time you don't get any of the money and what this has done is actually made a lot of projects much more successful because people feel like they are again sort of casting that dollar and pushing a project along and you see that um, when they graph projects at the sort of the donations start out really high and then there's sort of a dead zone and then as people see that time's running out or they're getting close they really the giving picks up again um, so it's a really interesting sort of model for fundraising Right. Well, with yeah, uh, with kick. Yeah, they do updates to their pages um, often, and they are also capturing information about who's giving. Um, so you have those people, you can get back in touch with them, you can follow up, you can say, here's our project, we finished it. Um, with Kickstarter, with the all or nothing thing, you don't get charged, you make a pledge, and then at the end, if they're successful, then they process all of those. Kickstarter page for the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment and it's basically a couple of guys in San Francisco who are saying that you know we've got these cool old Pac-Man games and the original version of Tetris and I think they came across a bunch of stuff at a garage sale and they're saying nobody's really preserving this why don't we do it but we don't have any space so they wanted to try to raise I think it was yeah twenty thousand dollars um, to just get an office or get a space where people could come and see their exhibits and um, you can see at the top how many people donated, 300, 306, they raised $21,000. Um, you can see that it's a pledge, so you're not, like Sarah said, you're not committed to giving until the project is successful. Um, and I think they posted a whole bunch of up updates as this project was going forward about. To people who gave to them. But I think the point here is that they really, explained why it was personal to them. They told about their year of service, they shared pictures of themselves in the Ukraine, they showed all kinds of pictures of the food that they were eating. They made it personal, they told stories, they made it um, interesting and a little bit quirky and fun. And I think that's a key to being successful in social media and on these sites is make it, um, try not to 
make it feel like corporate communications where there's nobody behind it, but make it feel like it's coming from somebody. I think I think that's pretty important. Yeah, with the Kickstarter projects, the um, and Indiegogo too, a lot. Most people now, I think, are starting to do little videos because you immediately get a face to it and somebody explaining why it's important to them. Mm -hmm. um, and I f forgot the statistic was something like 62% of people with videos reach their, you know, 62% more reach reach their goals when they're videos. Um, and then you can also, you know, it doesn't have to be one person. Um, lots of people do updates where there are many voices. So it's not one person saying, well, we're here and now this is where we're going, et cetera. Um, it's, it's many voices. So you could, you know, have different people do the updates and it makes it a lot more interesting. So the Pickle Project, they um, just kind of did a breakdown on their blog about who gave to them, and at least half were people that they already knew or had some sort of relationship with, and then other half were people that were maybe interested in the topic, had some connection to Ukraine or to local foods or things like that. Um, so I think that if you're looking for social media or these sites as a magic bullet to reach whole new audiences of people, it doesn't quite work like that, but it is a good way to get people you already know excited and then maybe tap people who are interested in your mission too. Um, and then most of the donations to the Pickle Project were about 25 bucks, um, over half of them were. There was a chunk, the green chunk is 50 bucks. Um, so they're not huge amounts of money, but I think overall they raised about $6,000. Um, and I think Sarah was talking about the graph earlier. This might not be a typical graph, but when you start these projects, often there's a lot of excitement at the beginning and that sort of falls off in the middle of the project and then picks back up. Um, I think that might partly be because people are also very excited about posting about the project early on, so the people who are running it put up a lot of effort into getting the project up and going and then sort of neglect to water the garden. Um, but if you do a little bit every day, I think you can kind of, it's kind of the constant gardener approach, keep the upward trend and then at the very end, use that last push, like, especially on Kickstarter, you know, we're not going to get funding unless you all give. Right. And I, and um, the other point to that, which just, I forgot. Okay. <laughs> um, and I think we touched on this earlier. Make it easy for people to share your project. I remember. Okay. So I, the museums, I know that um, in, in, there are all sorts of things to do. You know, five years ago, people said, you have to have a Facebook page. So everyone got a Facebook page, and they were like, what, what am I supposed to do with this? And then started, kind of used it, or whatever. Um, and then there a lot of um, talking about how do, you, how do you make a Facebook page engaging? How do you, you know, it's just sort of there. It's like having a website. Why am I doing this? And then everyone said, oh, Facebook is okay, but you have to blog. What you really need to do is blog. Everyone's like, I don't have time for this. I can't update the Facebook page and the website and my blog. I can't do this. But what I like about this is it's kind of a way that you can um, link them all together so that if you're updating your Facebook page, it you know, it can automatically also be the, the update to your Kickstarter project, and you can really link those. Yeah, and I think um, another nice thing about these projects is they're limited to a certain amount of time. So unlike Facebook, you really have to commit somebody to keeping up a Facebook page. These run a couple of weeks and then you're done. Um, so here's our contact information. I think let's move to the interesting part, which is questions <laughs> from you all. 
Yeah, I think the most successful ones are about 60 to 70 days. regional example of what you just you know spoke about would be um, uh, an organization in Charlotte called Art and Science Council has launched what's called powertogive.org and it works just like what you've um, what you've explained however <coughs> it's all about that cultural community so there's multiple um, organizations I think over a hundred organizations that have the capabilities and are invited to put up their projects um, on this site and that site markets it to the region, which is a really important part of, of getting the word out. And so as a service organization in, in this, in Charlotte, North Carolina, they've taken on that responsibility. Oh, I was just gonna share just really quick, a Kickstarter project I gave to, which is a little bit different way to think about a project you might put out there if you do films, any film production. It was a film project. Um, it was an indigenous film, all native cast, all native written, and I, that's obviously the kind of museum I work at, as I said earlier, so I was really, really interested and I love film. And they had gone through the festival circuit and had won some prizes, but they wanted to get some small-scale distribution. So they used Kickstarter to raise the money to produce a trailer um, so they could promote it and then um, be on 10 screens. And the goal was 80000 which I was surprised it was that cheap to do that. But they made it, they exceeded it, $85,000 is what they hit. This just concluded. But I think I got an email from them 
I think 10, 12 times through the process. So that kind of answers your question in the back from earlier, is that once you do engage, you'll hear from them if they're doing it right. Um, you won't know until the end. And then at the very, very conclusion of it, I got an email that said, your gift has now been processed. So it really kept me engaged. And the movie's called On the Ice. And pay attention, it'll be out soon. And they made their goal, and it was really exciting because it was full of video. The producers were talking and saying that they'd just been at this festival, they'd just done this, and it was really connecting me to this film process and learning about it as well. So a lot of museums do films. That may be one great starter project to try if you want to have a film produced, maybe, to tell people about the story and the footage you've already collected and share little clips. And what I'm getting for free from my gift, I think I gave $25, I get a free digital download of the whole movie, which is pretty good, um, to make that gift. A few months back, I read a book about Muhammad Yunus and his Grameen Bank, where he revolutionized banking in developing countries by providing small loans to impoverished women. From this, I gained a renewed, renewed appreciation in the idea of there being safety in numbers. By using these techniques that our panelists have outlined today, small museums can free themselves in many ways from the perception of catering to an exclusive handful of wealthy donors. By simply using your smartphone, everyone can be invested in your museum's future. The fundraising process becomes decentralized, diversified, and democratized. And by extending your outreach, this can only strengthen the unique service that sustainable small museums can provide. Thank you very much.